Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Uh, joining me on the phone, former uh, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts guitarist Ricky Bird. He's got a new album out called Sobering Times. Comes on the heels of the previous album called Clean Getaway, both dealing with sobriety and getting sober. And uh, to talk about all of this is, of course, the one, the only, Sir Alan Niven. Bonjour, monsieur. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing today? Good. Good. So before we get into talking about sobering times, uh, last episode with Alda Nova, we, we poked a little fun at Dan Huff, uh, guitarist Dan Huff. And my perception of the whole thing was that people would understand that we were busting balls sort of in a Howard Sterny kind of way or in a comedic kind of way. Because uh, we talked about him having this credit on the Guns N' Roses, which, of course, he doesn't have. And then we just, you know, we added, you added in about, hey, the Beatles this and the Beatles that. And I went, hey, Dan. I thought, personally, it was funny. But I got to tell you, I got this hate mail from fans going, you're ignorant. You're an idiot. How do you not know Dan Huff? And, well, of course we know Dan Huff. We, we, we were having a laugh because of this rumor about him being on Sweet Child of Mine, and then we just threw some extra stuff down. But uh, Mr. Allen, first of all, how are you? And, and, and what, do you, what do you think of, of some of the, the hate mail that came our way just because we were having a goof? Well, to me, the absolute law of the internet is do not scroll down. Uh, one of the things, one of the joys of the internet is the extraordinary access it gives you to information and for that matter opinion um, but it also exposes the fact that there are an awful lot of people in the world who in my book really don't deserve a voice because they don't have the brain to control it or the sense of humor that should go with it um, I was not and for my speaking for myself, intending to take a rise out of Dan, who has a prodigious sideman and studio musician um, CV. It's extraordinarily long, but for there to be a misplaced claim of playing on a, a Guns N' Roses record, then you know I can that can set me off a little bit and be defensive because there's still a part of my heart that says, no, those are my boys. And my boys did their own record. No one else should lay claim, especially to something so iconic. Right. So, right. you know, in the Trumpian era, when Trump says, I'm going to, if somebody hits me, I'm going to pummel them back. Uh, to me, it was just like a little brushback. Yeah. No, um, no. Which, should be which should be acceptable in the Trumpian era. But, you know, as... <clears throat> Some people who uh, responded to you, yes, we're totally ignorant. We know nothing and we've done nothing. Yes. And we certainly do not know as much and have not done as much as a lot of those people who choose to commentate. Yeah, and... And, 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 that, and that's a bit of sarcasm in case you missed it. Oh, yeah, I think we're going to have to start spelling stuff out. No, but just real quick on, on, on that, uh, to be fair to Dan... The sweet child of mine claim never came from his lips, or at least I've never seen him uh, mm. see, say that. On, 
it was on his Wikipedia page for a while, and then it get it got into the Guns N' Roses news group world, and it floated around. And then once it floated in the news groups, suddenly it became fact. And and then they started like, no, I read it. Uh, Dan Dan played on that. And and of course, if you go to the Wikipedia page now, it is not there. But yet, fans in the the Guns N' Roses news group world, they're still discussing it, or many are. And many are discussing it from a point of, it's fact, I know. And so that's why I sort of figured to myself, when we were going to have the conversation, let's go to somebody who was actually there, who might actually know, who's just a little bit more hmm, reliable than a Wikipedia entry or a Guns N' Roses news group posting. So that was that. Was that. And then, of course, we, we, we busted balls because it was funny. I mean, you know. I thought it was funny, but and I thought it, we were particularly clear because it was so outrageous when we're talking about the Beatles and the Eagles and all this that people would go, "Oh, right, they're having a goof." Okay, but but they didn't anyway. For for Dan, for those who don't know, he was in a band called Giant in the uh, late '80s, early '90s. They had a bunch of singles. If you ever tune into Sirius XM, every so often they still play that, and he has just done. Everything possible. I mean, he's worked with Tanya Tucker, uh, Mar- Martina McBride, uh, Shania Twain, Selena, Amy Grant, Faith Hill. Just nonstop work with Faith Hill, um, Olivia Newton-John, Madonna, uh, Laura Branigan. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. So, so if if uh, Dan was ever uh, heard the last episode and got insulted. Don't don't be. It was just it was just comedy, or at least our attempt at it. Uh, anyway, uh, just real quick, uh, Ricky Bird, were you a, a a fan of Joan Jett back in the day? Oh, who wouldn't be a fan of Joan with her attitude and uh, her uh, her presence and those those two or three songs that she had big hits with? Yeah. I mean, you know, they were fun. Well, let me ask you about that, because I Hate Myself for Loving You, or Crimson and Clover, I Love Rock and Roll. She made those, her songs, and made them big, but they were all brought to her and, and written for her. Desmond Child wrote one, and, and the others are covers. Um, from a record company position, if you were that guy, would you tell her, yes, go do these covers and, and make them good? Or at some point, do you say to them, hey... Let's see what you got to write because, you know, she's got this, this wonderful career and then she goes plays these songs and a lot of the ones she's playing were, were from somebody else. How do you sort of see? And, and listen, we're having a discussion, folks. Don't get all upset. It's just I'm just posing a question. Well, the original role of artists in the repertoire was inherent in the title. It was the function of matching an artist as they were termed, right. with repertoire songs. Right. Right. Um, in, in the 50s, that was more a case of entertainers and songs. Right. And you can, you can have somebody who can be tremendously powerful in their performance and be a, a very commanding presence on a stage, but they may not necessarily be a Bob Dylan. Um, not everybody can write a well-crafted song. There's right. a skill to it. And there is nothing amiss about being able to take a song and put it on 
and wear it well and get it over with conviction and that be a part of your performing persona. Um, there's a, uh, there's an there is an integrity in that. Um, you don't have to write the song. And the only, the only thing that for me personally was that in doing other people's material, I thought the essence of the art was to find a really great song that nobody knew or a, a really great song that perhaps wasn't quite realized that well by the person who composed it. Right. And if the sentiment and the attitude fitted the chemistry of the band or the artist, then it's, you know, it's, it's cool. Right. Um, but, you know, all, th all things in balance. Um, GNR obviously covered some songs, Great White covered some songs, but they also were capable of writing their own material of a standard right. um, and did not depend on performing other people's songs. But it's, it's all down to conviction, and Joan Jett had conviction. Oh, I agree. I agree. And, and you're right. You know, listen, you, you take a song by Great White like Face the Day, which is a great cover, and had it not been for Great White... I don't think I ever would have heard that Australian song. Certainly not back in the 80s in the day of no internet and no uh, Google this and that. To me, Face Today well, doesn't exist until Great White does it. So, Well, most people didn't even know who the Angels were either. Right. You know, so um, once I got to know, especially Doc Neeson, who I got to form a really profound friendship with, um, I was happy to bring people to notice of, of the angels because um, Doc had it. He was a uh, he was a little bit of a mystique, and he was a little bit of a wild Irish poet. And if you don't know the angels, go back and find their records. You'll find some fabulous stuff. Yeah, and uh, while you're checking out, but of the course, that's coming that's coming from somebody who's entirely ignorant and knows nothing. Yes, I, I was going to say that. And that's that was, sarcasm again. I, I was going to say how, how awfully <laughs> ignorant of you to say that. No, I'm kidding. Uh, see, now, now yeah. I feel I have to point out when we're kidding. I revel in my ignorance, so I do. <laughs> oh, my lord. Anyway, whatever. It, it, is, it is what it is. We, we love Dan Huff. In fact, I'm wearing a I love Dan Huff t-shirt right now. It's, it's, it's glorious, quite frankly. Actually, you know what? I'm wearing a I'm wearing a Seattle cracker Kraken T-shirt for real. That's for real. Um, anyway, uh, Ricky Bird of uh, formerly of Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, Hall of Famer, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer's new album is called Sobering Times. Go check it out. Great, uh, great rock and roll, old school rock and roll. Done with, uh, by the way, Liberty DeVito, Billy Joel's uh, former drummer, plays on this on this album. So there we go. Are we done? Should we, should we? Should we? Maybe we should just stick to knock knock jokes. Maybe that that might be more obvious. Knock knock. Who's there? Yeah, Dan maybe. Huff. <laughs> but no, my 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 thing, Mitch, is this: is the rule of the internet is do not scroll down. Do not scroll. Don't yeah. go into the comments section. You're not going to find an awful lot of people with high IQ, EQ, or SQ there, <laughs> and that's. Intelligence quotient, emotional quotient, or soul quotient. 
Uh, the, the, the joke goes like this. It goes, knock, knock, who's there? Dan Huff. And you go, Dan Huff who? And you go, exactly. <laughs> oh, there you go. There's your joke. <laughs> and, I, and, I, oh, you know, and heads up, I think we're going to find out just how intelligent this particular society is in November. Yeah, we will see. I but well, I think we're going to be in for a rough ride. So, guys, batten down the hatches and prepare for a rough November. And uh, sobering times indeed. Here is uh, the one, the only, Ricky Bird. We are speaking with guitarist Ricky Bird. The new album is called Sobering Times. And uh, it is on the 33rd anniversary of your journey to sobriety. So I do want to talk about that because there is, you know, the other album, Clean Getaway. And there's sort of a thematic, um, there's a theme of sobriety going on there. So I want to talk about all that stuff. But talk to me about this new album because I've had a chance to hear it. Mm -hmm. And it is fun. I mean, it's a fun, fun album. It just, it, it rocks. So so talk to me about putting that together. Well, well, first of all, hi, Mitch. Good day. <laughs> yes. As we say in Montreal, bonjour, Ricky. <laughs> um, so this is the second, as you mentioned, this is the second, uh, uh, con- let's call it a concept record. Um, how do I do this? Okay. So uh, maybe, well, first of all, I, when there's not a pandemic, <laughs> I, I go around the country and I do uh, recovery music groups. And I go to treatment facilities, uh, juvenile detention centers, high schools. Um, I haven't been to a prison yet, but I would like to do that, do the Johnny Cash thing. But, um, and I have a collection of songs. I mean, it started with the Clean Getaway record, yeah? Um, that all deal with addiction, recovery, hope, change for the better, you know, but there's, there's nothing goofy about them. They're like rock and roll tunes. Um, and they, they started, I started putting them together. I mean, if you want to backtrack how this happened in the first place, I'll do it quickly. I was asked maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago to come down to Florida. A friend of mine was doing an outdoor recovery event, nothing, you know, major. It was like in, in Florida, in Miami. They put they built a little stage and and you know I had no recovery songs whatsoever, but it was my friend Richie Supa who we write together sometimes, and um, I said yeah sounds cool, um, so I came down and so I, we we did this thing I think I played I Love Rock and Roll or something I don't remember he he had one recovery song, um, and after this this little show we did, I had people coming over to me going, wow man it's so cool to find out you're in recovery like uh, you know I. I've always loved your career. I love the bands you've played with. Um, either I'm in recovery or unfortunately I lost somebody in recovery or it's good to know that there are other people. And a kind of like a light went uh, off over my head, uh, which doesn't happen often. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I got to take advantage of it. And I said, well, that's interesting um, because I never really, um, I never really talked about it uh Really, uh, I mean, I'm not anonymous about my recovery. I'm, I'm very public about that, but not about the, the, the methods, you know, that's, that's kept uh, under cover of the night. But, but the, uh, the fact that I'm in recovery is, is most people know who I am at this point. So, so I started doing, um, we, we hooked up with this third guy and we started doing these kind of recovery events, uh, mostly in Florida. There was a couple of sp- spread out around the country, I think. And we put together a cool band, you know, I think Liberty DeVito from Billy Joel's band was in at my pal. And I can't remember who Andy Burton that plays with Ian Hunter was on keyboards. Um, I can't remember who else was in the band. I mean, it went around, you know, uh, Christine Ullman was singing with me. 
the beehive queen. And um, we would get the same reaction. People just loved it. It was like, oh, wow, we're doing like this sloppy rock and roll. And people are coming over to us and saying, yeah, man, because, uh, you know, we're not a glum lot. You know, we have fun in recovery. It's going back to what you said about the record being fun. Um, so that's, that was that. There was that piece of that. And then um, what happened was uh, I, I remember I was up here in New York. I can't remember how much time I had, uh, maybe 26 years or something like that. And I was going through those moments. I mean, if you stay in recovery long enough, you're going to have moments where, you know, this, everything hits the fan. You know, you don't pick up, you don't use, but you're just emotionally a little distraught, confused. And I called Richie in Florida. I said, you know, I started telling him, he said, well, why don't you just come down here, stay at the house and let's put pen to paper like we do as songwriters and write about it. So we wrote a song called Broken is a Place, which is the last song on the Clean Getaway record. So I came back to New York. I did a quick um, demo and I, and I just put it on the Internet. And I started getting all these messages from people from around the world saying, oh, man, you told my story and you made me cry with that. And you made me think with that. And this, again, same light bulb. Uh, and I said, well, this is interesting. So I wrote a second song, you know, when I had about five or six songs, um, I made a call to one of the facilities that I, I met, uh, somebody from when we were doing those gigs in Florida. And I said, D I know you have a place up in Jersey and I live in, in New York. What if I came there with an acoustic guitar and I just did like a group, like a recovery music group, you know, come in with my tats and, you know, my rock and roll history and pedigree. And let me, let me Play for the clients. Yeah, sounds great. So I went in there and I and I did this first one and it was I came out of there on a cloud. I mean, I only had like six songs, um, and everybody the same thing. I was getting the same reaction from everybody. Wow, man, it was like I felt the same way. Like you told my story. Like I identified so much with the lyrics. So I kept writing, and the one common ground that a uh, common uh, thing that kept happening after after each group is they'd come over to me and they'd say, where can I get this music? And I kept procrastinating. And, you know, I think it was like eight months. And I said, I guess I got to do a record or something. So I did the Clean Getaway record, you know, and um, we put it out. I mean, who knew, like, I was going to do this. this. I'd be this guy. But um, the, the main rules were it had a rock and it had to have a message, but no preaching allowed. <laughs> you know, I'm not the I'm not the sobriety police, man. I'm just here to, to, to tell you what it was like and how, you know, what it's like now. And, and if you want to change, there's plenty of help out there. There's 25 million people in, in America alone that are in recovery. So we put out the Clean Getaway record and we got such a great response. I said, you know what? Let's let's rinse and repeat. <laughs> so <laughs> right. I started writing songs, you know, um, as I would do as if just like I'm doing any kind of record. Um, and I started to go into the studio. I, I always work. I've done three records at um, a place called uh, Parcheesi Studios in Huntington, Long Island. It's like 45 minutes from me. And my partner in crime there is Bob Stander, who, who owns the studio. It's in his house, man. It's in his basement. You know, analog, digital, um, both. Um, and uh, we started recording, you know, and I have a I don't have a band. So I have a cast of characters that have been on the last three records, give or take. Um, and we recorded this and it took two years. So, uh, clean getaway came out in 2017, let's say to getting close to 2018, uh, halfway through that, you know, I started doing this and, um, it took almost two years, not consistently though, continuously. If I look at the, like the log of my studio time, it was like two months, 
but because of scheduling, mine and his, it took almost two years. And we, we came in almost under the wire once the lockdown started here. I mean, New York was brutal. It was like it was like Thunderdome uh, in March. So, uh, but so we did a couple of last minute things over the phone, uh, you know, mixing, tweaking, uh, and and so here we go again. You know, this is the second one, and yeah, it's got to be fun. It's got to be rock and roll. No preaching allowed. My job is just to lay the the words out. You know, this is this is what addiction's all about. You know. Uh, no, you're not alone. We all feel the same way at certain times. Um, we've all been there. Uh, and if and if you want to change your life, here's some solutions. So like at the end of every song is, you know, there's some form of a solution, uh, you know, and not everything is, is, is uh, you know, hitting a nail with a hammer addiction. There's just stuff on there that like the song Stronger, I Come Back Stronger is about changing your life for the better. Um, I wrote a song on, uh, funny enough, I went to Nam two years ago in Nashville and I, I picked up a, a Mando guitar. I came back to New York and I started strumming Hear My Song, the third song on the record. You know, it's got like a McCartney kind of vibe. Um, and I started, you know, uh, I started writing about gratitude. Uh, so that's about gratitude. You know? and, and, and that's it. So I, I love this batch of songs. I co-wrote three songs. And I did a cover of, I actually did two covers, but I only one made it on the record. I did a cover of Merle Haggard's The Bottle Let Me Down, which has been covered a few times by country uh, people, I think. But I did a kind of like like The Faces, you know, which is my style, I guess, um, or one of my styles. And um, I also did a, a pretty damn good uh, cover of Reach Out, uh, I'll Be There by The Four Tops. But as I was putting together the actual record, there was this commercial for like, it was, I don't know, it was like a, a car insurance or it was something. And it had a... The, God awful version of that song, and I just went, yeah, I think I'm gonna hold on to this one for a while. <laughs> Sounds like a Geico was, commercial. Yeah, it was just bad. It was like it sounded like teenagers or something. Uh, and um, you know, I mean, I played that whole intro like like you know, I Jeff Beck did out like a whole bit. So we'll we'll do it as a bonus track. We'll put it out down the road. But um, you know, it, it's. I'm really proud of the record. I mean, my daughter Francesca, Frankie, she took the photos because it was we we're in a lockdown, right? So, like, a, where was I going to get photos? Um, so we went down. We took we took a, some of them here in the basement. I think the back cover was here in the basement with my with my purple backdrop uh, that I told you before that I, I, I love the purple it. backdrop. It's a it's a it's a tablecloth that I bought on uh, Amazon because <laughs> I wanted to do some streaming live stuff because <laughs> um, I used to have a finished basement, but I lost, uh, you know, we lost everything in Sandy down here. So it's just concrete and, uh, you know, shelving. Yeah. Well, okay, <laughs> let, let, let me ask you this. You, you mentioned that you go into the recovery place with like six yeah. songs and an acoustic guitar. What was that thrill like for? Because you're going in and you don't know what's going to happen. And then you come out of there and people go, wow, that was fantastic. I connect with you. Because you, you've you played the largest stages with Joan Jett. You've played the stadiums. You've opened up for all these people. I Love Rock and Roll goes to the top of the charts. You have all of this. But I'm assuming that that little moment with that that guitar was probably the most powerful, right? Yeah, you hit the... You hit the uh, nail right on the head. You hit the bird right on the head. Yep. Um, there's something that I'm getting out of this that I didn't go out of. Um, don't get me wrong. I love my career in, in, in civilian rock and roll. I couldn't ask for a better. A 13-year-old kid got to do what he wanted to do, right? 
played with most of my heroes growing up. Uh, but there's something extra here because, uh, you know, I'm a recovery guy. Um, and when I love seeing people get it. So now talking to people out here and, and, you know, on Facebook that are in recovery and we private message each other and this and that, that's one thing. You go into a treatment center or a detox and people are just coming in and they're just, you know, waking up from a disaster. Uh, and this is like their 10th rehab and you play something and they said, you know, you look over there and you see some big tough guy, like kind of crying a little bit, which I always tell them, uh, uh, I said, man, you know, we used to use to not feel, L- look at you, look at the progress you're making and you just got here. Imagine, you know? So yeah, there's, there's something I get, a, I get something out of, of seeing other people get it. It's my responsibility as being somebody in recovery, long-term recovery that I pass it on. There's a lot of people struggling, man. I mean, for whatever reason, insurance, uh, not ready, um, uh, you know, pandemic, whatever the reason, there's a lot of people that need to be in treatment that can't get into treatment. Yeah. Uh, and, and I found a really great third act for myself where I could still be this, you know, rock and roll pirate guy. But um, um, my message is about, um, you know, changing your life for the better. And uh, once again, I'm not the, the sobriety police. Like, I'm, I'm just there to put the message out there, man. You know, I can't get anybody clean. So let me ask you about that. When was your epiphany? Because you talk about the light going on. You know, you're on the road and you're playing these stadiums and everything's going well. And 33 years ago, something goes, okay, that's it. Done. I- I'm done. <laughs> And and there's got to be a moment where were you just at the lowest low where you just went, wow, yeah. the, the next is six feet below unless I start looking up, right? Well, I had a couple of near misses. Let's okay. put it that way. Uh, some of them, uh, you know, uh, I mean, not everybody knows about that stuff, like the, what goes on in your hotel rooms or uh, when you're in your house. Um, but I did have a couple of near misses. Uh, so I started, um, first of all, I have, I have this in my family, right? My dad and his father both died uh, as a direct result of alcoholism. I have an uncle that's got 40 years in the program. So you could change the dynamic of your family at any time. Um, and funny enough, he used to send me like pamphlets, like recovery pamphlets when in the 80s when we were sitting around doing blow and, and drinking Jack and stuff. And I would go, what is this? Like, why is this man sending me this stuff? <laughs> so I used to, you know, I used to use it to put my, my glass of Jack on it so I wouldn't ruin the table, you know, uh, or, or, you know, cutting stuff up. But um, so, uh, so, so I got that. I got the disease, right? I started smoking pot when I was 13. Um, I was a very quiet, shy kid. Um, I loved music and baseball when I was a kid. But I kept to myself. Only child kept to myself. Um I hated, you know, fearful going to school. I just, I was, you know, I knew I wanted to be in music when I saw the Stones and the Beatles on Ed Sullivan when I was nine. I, I looked up and I went, that, you know, because they yeah. looked different than the rest of the world. And I felt different as a little kid, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh, and the music, I love the music. I mean, and then when I saw them do Jumping Jack Flash in like, like freaking Devil Makeup on the Ed Sullivan show, I went, oh yeah, <laughs> that's for me. Um, so I started smoking when I was 13 and immediately I felt, uh, a weight of the world as a little kid, a teen, young teen removed, like when I smoked pot. Now we all, most of my friends were smoking pot and having a Heineken in a garage band. You know, not everybody went on to continue the path and keep adding on to it. You know, chemistry, uh, I did. And, um, you know, when I started hanging out at like 16, 
17. I was already hanging out in rock clubs in the city. So now I'm hanging out with all the people. So I'm doing pills. I'm drinking hard liquor along with the beer. And the pot runs through the whole story. And I'm not, you know, I wasn't one joint guy. You know, I was like, I was wake up in the morning, you know, the, the little roaches in the ashtray, like somebody that smokes like cigarettes. And there's always like little bits and pieces in the ashtrays so they could in the pinch. They got something. Um, so, yeah, 16, 17. But it was all fun and games, man. There was no consequences. I was just a teenager. So you wind up in somebody's strange person's house, you know, the next morning in, in like Brooklyn. So, you know, it was all funny games. When you're an adult and you start having responsibilities, you're still acting like that. There's a problem. Then I get into bands and then everything starts to increase a little bit. Now we're in the 80s, late, uh, late 70s, early 80s, and cocaine is introduced. Uh, because when I was a kid, I mean, cocaine was something, you know, I heard like, you know, it was in a song called Minnie the Moocher, you know, from the from the 30s. Like, you know, she was a real cokey. Like, I didn't know what cocaine was really when I was a kid. Um, you just read about it. You saw it on TV. You know, you heard rich people did it or something. Um, and heroin? In high school, there must have been like, you know, four or five people all the way in the corner in the schoolyard in my school, you know, in leather jackets. Those were the kids that were known, ooh, they do heroin, right? But we didn't, we didn't, I didn't know about it. The only thing I knew was what I read in rock magazines. This one died from heroin. This one died from, you know. Uh, so early, late 70s, early 80s, cocaine came in. And I was just, yeah, I'm into this. I like this. And it sucked. It was awful. When did it start becoming a problem? Because again, and, and I'll go back to the whole Joan Jett thing. The, the '80s were great for you. I mean, the, yeah, the '80s were the, the '80s were terrific. Yes, they were. When when does it start going where you know Joan or anybody else looks at you and goes, "Oh, okay, he, that that's not how you play this song. This is not working." Or the manager goes, um, "We don't know if he's going to make the gig because he's." Yeah, it was never like that, really. Okay. Uh, as far as like, I, I could say honestly that. Um, I could count uh, maybe two or three times that um, I did like cocaine before a gig, you know, and it's, it was awful. <laughs> it was just awful because like three songs in, you need more. So I was like, uh, this is not for me. You know, and I know the stories, the Aerosmith stories with Steven, like freebasing behind the amps and stuff. It's like, no, I didn't do that. But um, uh, so for, for gigs, yeah, maybe we smoked a joint or, or you know, you'd have a Heineken or two, but I was never really trash for a gig. It was always after the shows, you know, whether we were touring, whether we were driving to the next place um, on the bus or it was in the hotel room partying or people you met from the show or this and that. And then when I came off the road, those in-betweens, it was just party, 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 lots of blow, you know, I mean, just a lot. And com combined that with taking pills. I mean, I was a garbage head, you know, just give me whatever you got. I'm good. Um, I was, you know, physically I was 128 pounds. Um, you know, I played, I still played fine. I was, you know, played rock and roll fine. Um, so I guess to answer your question, there was, that wasn't. So, so you never hit it, a wall, like, you never hit a wall professionally then. There right. were a couple of, no, I don't think so. I mean, a couple okay. of people said to me, dude, you know, I remember once I was with my friend, Steve Marriott from Humble Pie. Right. And I was well into my, uh, cocaine maniac stuff, maniac stuff. And we, I was sitting on his tour bus. He was doing. He was playing in the city with his one of his last bands, right? And you know, he was crazy. We were hanging out, and we were both together. We were insane, double down. Um, but I remember I kept grabbing the coke from him, and and he was notorious for drinking and partying. And he looked at me and he said, 
you know, mate, you might want to cut down. And my brain just went, oh, that's not a good sign. You know, so, so, uh, yeah. And then there was, there was an interest, there was a, uh, an incident in 1983. We were on the road with Joan um, and I collapsed my lung. Um, my lung collapsed. I collapsed my lung or my lung collapsed? Well, I guess I was part of it. Both. We were in Opelika, Alabama, and, and it collapsed on stage. And, um, you know, I found out later on that I, I was really, I had 10 minutes. I was having, I was going to have a massive heart attack. I heard from the doctors. Um, uh, so they, they made up a publicity story that Gary, you know, I couldn't, I was off the road for a couple of weeks. So there's a, there's a moment. Um, and they made up a, a story that Gary, the bass player, hit me on stage by accident with his, uh, you know, the head of his bass. He had one of those big Ampeg bass with the looped headstock. So that was nonsense. Uh, I was I was back in New York. I started smoking coke a little bit and I literally burnt a hole in my lung that it took a little while to manifest. And then it was like a bicycle tire, you know, between that and not living right and smoking a lot of pot, and just part and not sleeping and stuff. It's just I blew a hole in my lung. Um, and that was in 83 and it took me till 87 to, to decide I'd had enough, you know? So from 83, uh, you know, once that incident happened to 87, that's where like I started circling the drain, you know, cause you want to stop, but you can't stop. And it's like this cycle of like disappointment and, um, remorse and, you know, this and that. Um, and it's funny cause I, I just heard, uh, somebody tell me that people from back then were saying, oh, I don't think he had much of a problem. It's like, dude, you should have been in my hotel room at five o'clock in the morning or been, been here in New York, you know, what, what, what was going on. No, I had a problem. Let me, know, I had a problem. Let me ask you about this because I, I once spoke to Dave Mustaine of Megadeth and he said, once an addict, always an addict. You, you, you're, you're, you're that till the day you die. Do you have that constant struggle every morning where you just go, hey, a little whiskey wouldn't hurt? I mean, is there still yeah. that hurt? No? no. I mean, listen. Um, I was talking to somebody about this. I mean, I have tools that I've, I've, I've collected over the last 33 years, uh, recovery tools that I use so I don't get to that point. Do I have emotional uh, non-sobriety sometimes? Yeah. When I don't do the work that I was taught, I let outside things affect my men, my, my serenity, let's just say. Uh, yeah. uh, I could honestly say I, I can't think of, I don't know, maybe early at the beginning, I thought, oh, that'd be great if I could just do this. I never, ever think of, oh, I wish I could have a drink or I wish I could have a, a drug. I mean, you know, if I'm kidding around, I'll say, man, I would just love to watch a Yankee game and take a hit off a joint and just relax with, nope. I can't do it. I'm, I'm an So what I mean by that, I don't know what Dave meant, is, is I um, have a disease that um, once triggered, once you do the first one, it starts this process of craving uh, of doing stuff that you know is bad in spite of the consequences. Um, now, after 33 years, am I cured? Well, not history. In the history of recovery, the chances are I'm not cured. Everybody's different. Like, maybe I could have a, a glass of Jack Daniels and I'd be fine. Do I want to take that chance? I don't think so. Yeah. So that's the point. We're at that, we're at that thing. It's like, I'm fine. You know, as far as me being an addict, an addict's an addict, what that means is like if I do the first one, the odds are the over and under is that I'm going to start go, you know, wind up. The, yeah, the plunge. I, You're going to take the plunge. Well, I'm going to wind up where I started, ended. But, but you know, I've, I know like I, from the history of recovery, you see some people, they have years like and they say, you know what, I'm just going to I like a glass of wine at the end of the day. And it may take five years until they wind up back in that hole again. And it happens either slowly, very, everybody's different. 
the, the thing I know is like, I'm better off like this. I had a couple of near death experiences. I was a, a, a complete maniac. And, you know, now uh, in, in, in this over three decades, I've made 101 uh, mistakes in recovery. Uh, none of them were picking up a drink or a drug, but I've made stupid moves. Uh, I've heard people, um, you know, uh, we're all human. We, we do dumb, dumbass shit from time to time. But yeah, I, I can I can attest to that. And, and I know somebody who's who's in recovery and he went in for all the hard drugs. And after three years, he started drinking again. And I said, dude, not going to work. He goes, yeah, but I went in for the drugs. I didn't go in for the alcohol. I'll be fine. I'm like, mm. yeah, I'm not well, too sure about that. Yeah, I was like, I'm not too sure about that, bro. <laughs> well, that's an interesting thing because it's not up for me to tell people that. It's I could suggest it. The, the point is, is that um, this is a disease that is, has a, a couple of different parts. It's physical, mental, spiritual, you know. So, so like we drink to not feel or we use to not feel, you know, I like getting high is, is old. You know, it's really, if you get to the start peeling away the onion, it's because you're, you're hiding something. You're, you're trying to avoid life and life's terms, whatever the hell it is, trauma from when you were a kid, whatever it was. So if you're abstinent, um, first of all, you can't get high if you don't drink or drug. That's a fact, right? If you um, and I learned this when I went to school a couple of years ago to get certified as a counselor, uh, I'm a counselor in training. Um, if I ever get back to work, it'll be great. Um, and a recovery coach. And I learned um, like like uh, recovery coach. It's almost like you're in recovery when you say you are. The, the, the thing is, so like it's harm reduction. So, well, I'm not doing heroin heroin anymore, but I still like to drink, like you just said, right? Um, and you have to, as a recovery coach, it's like, okay, so let's work that way. Now, if that doesn't work out for you, then we can move to square two. Point being is, once you start using, you're once again in that realm where you're not living life as it's handed to you, and you're masking your feelings and stuff. So you're back to that again, you know. So, so to my only, my humble opinion, you know, abstinence, total abstinence, eventually. I mean, I could, I could understand harm reduction until you get to a point where you find total recovery, where you're just don't do anything. Um, that's the way I done it. And it, and it, and it works for me, whatever, listen, bro, whatever keeps you on the right side of the grass, I'm all for it. That's, that's yeah. the way I look at it. And, and, and I'm not speaking about myself. I've been lucky enough that I ha I don't drink. I, so I ha I've had two heart surgeries in my life and a drink would, would not work out for me. So I just, you know, I'm, I'm off of that. Oh, we, we're at half an hour. I just want to ask you one, uh, Joan Jack question before we leave. Uh, a lot of her great singles, uh, I Hate Myself for Loving You, uh, Crimson and Clover, I Love Rock and Roll, all outside songwriters, Alan Merrill, uh, Desmond Child, etc. Who we just lost, Alan, in the COVID virus. Yeah, he was one of the first, unfortunately. A friend of mine, too. Yeah, well, we share him as, as a friend in common because we used to email each other, Alley Cat, Alley Cat. Yeah, yeah. And We've done I Love Rock and Roll together in some clubs in the city. It was, it was great fun. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But uh, let me just qu quickly ask about that. Uh, in terms of a lot of the great singles, a lot of the great success had these outside songwriters. W was that something that was needed or was it a frustration that the songs the band were writing weren't the ones that were getting the radio attention? Was it was it the record company saying, hey, go write with Desmond? Hey, go. How did that sort of come together? Uh, I mean, oh, God, who knows? But, uh, you know, Sinatra didn't write anything. No, I, I, and by the way, yeah, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I'm not holding it against you. 
No, but I'm saying like some of it might have been record company. I mean, I remember, you know, I, I love reading about people like Sinatra and stuff. There were times in the 60s when his career was like not going anywhere. They would say, hey, you should cut this song Winchester Cathedral, you know. And it was like, I don't think that's good. No, just cut it. You know, I don't know if he had a hit or it. But, you know, record companies will come to you and say, we got this writer, Desmond Child. He's written like a song for Bon Jovi. He's written a song for this one, for Alice Cooper, you know. And they came up with Hate Myself for Loving You, and it's great. So I think it really doesn't matter. I mean, I co-wrote like 13 songs with Joan um, uh, for the the, uh, Blackhearts and Kenny. And um, I don't know. I guess it doesn't really matter where it comes from uh, to me. I I don't know. I mean, why does somebody put a cover song on? Like, The Bottle Let Me Down is a great Merle Haggard song. Now, now. Merle Haggard did it country, you know, you know, each night I leave the ballroom. I did it. You know, they're great songs. You know, why not? If somebody writes a great song and you, you cover it, what's the difference? And Crimson and Clover, great idea, great thought. You know, I don't know where it came from. Great idea for a girl to sing it. Uh, and um, uh, what else? I mean, we did. People keep posting stuff that I forgot we did. Uh, I know we did a covers record somewhere in there, but we did Bird Dog. We did uh, we did Star Star by the Stones. We uh, there's a whole bunch of songs that we did. Yeah, um, you did some covers. Chuck Berry stuff too. Yeah, I mean I don't remember. It was like 35 years ago already. But it, great, uh, great stuff. And and listen, you you have the ultimate compliment in the sense that I love rock and roll. Your version is the version that people know and recognize. Kind of like Twist and Shout by the Beatles. People go, Oh, I love Twist yeah. and Shout. Yeah, that's a cover song. And, they, oh. <laughs> and Aaron, Aaron did a great uh, his band, the Arrows, did the Arrows. a great job on it too. Listen, um, I've had a great um, I've had a great career so far. It's certainly not over yet, um, but um, being with Joan and the Blackhearts led to a lot of cool stuff. I love Joan. Um, I love playing that stuff with her and touring the world. You know, and I'm in the Rock Hall because of Joan um, and that that particular the four of us. Um, and um, from there, now I'm doing this stuff. And, and also because, you know, one thing we didn't mention is like, uh, because of my history and stuff from playing with Roger and Ian and this one, and that, I get to be in these only, every time there's like a big charity event, you know, I'm part of these like, um, uh, like all-star bands with like Lib on drums and maybe Will Lee on bass and Paul Schaefer, you know, and I've backed up Smokey Robinson, Mavis Staples, Sam Moore, like, I mean, Dude, the list is ridiculous. Like I've had, I've been able to play songs that I listened to when I was like twelve, you know, with the real guys, you know. So I have nothing to complain about. And now I'm at this stage that I just want to play rock and roll. I mean, this might be—I don't know—I don't think I'm going to do another recovery record, but uh, uh, who knows if I'll do another album, maybe singles. But I'm very happy. This third act, I couldn't ask for better. I've combined rock and roll with um, trying to help people. Uh, because I've seen it from both sides. I've seen it as a counselor. I've seen it as a friend that knows people, you know, lots of people that have passed over the years. I know it. And, and as a user who's in recovery and I know you don't have to live like that anymore. So I'm just trying to do it with like three chords and a smile and, and a skull ring. You know what I mean? Just to, well, it's working out. I mean, Sobering Times is, is a fun, fun album and it's out September 25th. And, uh, as, as always, as we say in Montreal, merci, uh, Ricky. 
Absolute pleasure. It's been like 20 years between our interviews, but uh, I always look forward to it. So thank you. Uh, I hope it's not going to be another 20, baby, because I'll be in a home by then. Yeah. And, and yeah, who knows where I'll be? So no, hopefully the next one will be like next year on when, when we get back to a full touring and full, you know, let's go. Just, just let people know that they could um, pre-order the record at rickybird.com. Very simple. Rickybird.com. Bird is with a Y. And, and uh, it comes out September 25th uh, to, uh, with my anniversary. And um, we're working on it. We're just finishing up a distribution deal. So I'll, it'll be on all of the usual suspects, a- Apple and, and stuff. And Spotify and all that stuff. And, and okay. if you pre-order, um, you know, on rickybird.com, like my life right now is doing interviews. And then tonight I sit there while I watch the Yankee game and I'm signing CDs <laughs> and putting packages together. And then I go to the uh, post office and they see me come with a giant bag and they go, oh, no, not him again. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way that's the way to do it and and oh, i love the cool, fact baby. that you have a physical product because you know I've got, I've got my i've got my ufo collection over here I, I i i need physical i can't do this uh i wanted to do vinyl yeah um but um i you know we started the pre-orders a while ago and i out of hundreds and hundreds of pre-orders i only got literally a handful of people that wanted vinyl and and i was looking at the expense of of, of manufacturing and i and so i wrote people and i said here's the deal uh, I'm not going to do vinyl right now because there's not enough of you want it. But in lieu of vinyl, I'm going to give you a thank you on the back of the cover <laughs> on nice. the inside. And everybody went, okay, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, a lot has been said about vinyl versus CD. But a, a, a CD you can produce for like 90 cents. <clears throat> but a vinyl is, is like 30 bucks. And it's just like, okay. Let me, let well, me... maybe it'll come down because now they're saying that, uh, what did I just read? That vinyl, vinyl has outsold CDs for the first time since uh, the 1980s. Well, maybe that means you know, if more people do it, the price will come down. I mean, I'm just starting this record. I could I could do a vinyl in six months and Absolutely. add a bonus track or something. I just couldn't do it right off the bat because this is all DIY. Do it yourself. Do it yourself. DIY, right. No, DIY. Sorry, DIY. 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 So, you know, we're just doing we're doing the best I can, best we can. And I'm just doing I'm just like in between interviews and packing up the stuff um i haven't touched my guitar in two weeks which is really weird yeah. you know well, i started on. a song two song uh, two two weeks ago and then i put it down and i look thank god i put it on my phone like i sort of sing into my mic on the phone otherwise i would not remember anything yeah so 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 pick up the guitar give uh, give liberty a call and let's get some more music uh, done yeah. got, got plenty of pandemic free time to do this stuff yeah, so uh, yeah. sobering times baby absolutely sobering times thank you sir merci Nice talking to you, Mitch. Absolutely. You. you too. Cheers. All right, good.